A reading from the Sufi poet Rumi. Because of the beloved one, my heart is at peace. My soul is illumined. From the beloved's verdancy, hundreds of blessed rivers are flowing into the rose gardens. But in order to enter your rose garden, your soul must make peace with its thorns. So choose love, choose love. Without it, this beautiful love, life is nothing but a burden. The second reading is from Our Passion for Justice by Carter Hayward. Love is not fundamentally a sweet feeling, not at heart a matter of sentiment, attachment, or being drawn inward. Love is active, effective, a matter of making reciprocal and mutually beneficial relations. Love creates righteousness or justice here on earth. To make love is to make justice. Loving involves struggle, resistance, risk, and making justice is not a warm, fuzzy experience. The most compelling relationships demand hard work, patience, and a willingness to endure tensions and anxiety in creating mutually empowering bonds. For this reason, loving involves commitment. We are not automatic lovers of self, others, world, or God. Love does not just happen. We are not love machines, puppets on the string of a deity called love. Love is a choice, not simply or necessarily a rational choice, but rather a willingness to be present to others without pretense or guile. Love is a conversion to humanity a willingness to participate with others in the healing of a broken world and broken lives. Love is the choice to experience life as a member of the human family, a partner in the dance of life, rather than as an alien in the world or as a deity above the world, aloof and apart from human flesh. What wondrous love is this? Look around, here's the real sermon. It's in the pews. It's in the love and the hope and the commitment and the willingness to spend Friday night at church. (laughs) It's in the dreams of fulfilling a call to ministry, Kelly's call and the call of so many in this room, ordained and not. What wondrous love is this? I've attended many ordinations by now, many installations, and the more of them I attend, the more I start wondering, why doesn't everyone get to have one of these? (laughs) Everyone who's living a life of ministry, teachers and stay-at-home parents, public servants and nonprofit leaders, firefighters and artists and entrepreneurs, why isn't everyone ordained who is offering their gifts for the well-being of all? who is called to a path of love and healing and fulfilling that call. We could all go to ordinations every night. (laughs) 
celebrating all kinds of life with good food and dancing afterwards, what would be the harm? <laughs> Since we don't do that, how about if tonight's ordination is everyone's then? The way every wedding celebrates all loving relationships. Every child dedication is a commitment to all children everywhere. How about if we're all ordained into love tonight? And Kelly is our proxy as she becomes <laughs> Reverend Kelly. What wondrous love is this? As I thought about this occasion and the gathering that would come together, the beauty of word and song and flower and face that would surely be here, my mind and my heart kept turning again and again to the subject of leadership. I've been reflecting about leadership lately as I've watched events unfolding in the United States and in many other places in the world, as I've watched escalating tensions and violence and conflict, and I've wondered over and over what kind of leadership could actually bring more love into this broken, hurting world. This world now, this one, the one where we're all sleeping and waking every day, the one that breaks our hearts a thousand times a day and makes our mouths fall open in awe a thousand and one. This world, what kind of leadership could awaken us to love in this world, to bring more love to this world? Lewis Hyde, in his book, The Gift, wrote, a, cult, a lively culture will have artists whose creations are gifts for the transformation of the human race. With gifts that are agents of change, it is only when the gift has worked in us, only when we have come to its level, as it were, that we can give it away. Passing the gift along is the act of gratitude that finishes the labor the transformation is not accomplished until we have the power to give the gift on our own terms. What kind of ministry, what kind of artistry using the medium of love could yet transform the human race? How do we receive gifts of transformation? How do we let them work in us so that we might rise to their level and pass them along claiming the power to do so on our own terms. I've been reading a lot of books about leadership lately, and there are many great ones. But tonight, rather than quoting any of those wise books on the topic, I thought I would share a few gifts of leadership that have been transformational in my life, that have changed me, moments I could call art or ministry or healing or simply gifts. This is my attempt to pass along a small fraction of what I have received and to express my gratitude for all the moments that have created me. Similar moments have created every person here, individually and collectively, to be the individuals and the community that we are tonight. Once we start looking, there are so many of these moments of drenching love and generosity we have to sit down and put our head between our knees to breathe. So I hope as I'm sharing my experiences, you'll be calling up the memories of your own mentors and ministers, teachers and artists. Even as I name a few of mine, you'll be turning to your own inner sermon rather than tuning only to my words, savoring your own reflections 
as I have been savoring my time reflecting on those moments that have shaped me. So here's a question to start with. When did you experience powerful, love-creating leadership when you were a child? Who bent you towards love at an early age, and how did they do it? When I think about it, when I cast my eye through all of the paths I walked as a child, the face that lights up most clearly for me is that of Mrs. Graham, my third-grade teacher. Mrs. Graham loved us. She loved kids. She loved me. She thought kids were funny and interesting, that I was funny and interesting. She listened to us. And she told stories about herself. She told us who she was. She loved woodpeckers. And so she named every row in the classroom after a woodpecker. (laughs) So on a normal day, we might hear her say, okay, the pileated may line up for lunch first. I've loved woodpeckers all my life, partly with my heart and partly with hers. She passed that to me. Mrs. Graham was at the front of room three at Overbrook School in Charleston, West Virginia, the day that John Kennedy was shot, when Randall Haney's mom came running in the back door with a transistor radio to tell us about it. Handing out lined paper to us, Mrs. Graham said solemnly, You will always remember this day. Write down exactly what happened right here because you'll want to tell your grandchildren about it. You are part of history. I remember sitting there in disbelief that someone could shoot the president, that I was part of history, that Mrs. Haney and that transistor radio would matter to my grandchildren, that I might have grandchildren, Mrs. Graham believed in us, not just as children, but as life itself, as part of the living movement of history. Transformational leaders recognize people's worth and value even before people see it themselves. Transformational leaders see patterns that value every person's place in history. Transformational leaders know, in the words of the rapper Lupe Fiasco, to whom my daughter has introduced me, if you don't become an actor, you'll never be a factor. (laughs) Transformational leaders create actors wherever they go. So now, Castor, I hear for a moment, when did you experience transformational leadership, a moment that created more love when you were a teenager? Those years are so ripe for the presence and the absence of love. I think of the minister in my UU church during my teen years, Gordon McKeeman. Gordon's own three kids were in youth group that I was in, and so he was in and out as much as other parents, giving rides and such. One night he came in, and one of his kids needed some money and asked him for it, so he took out his wallet, and my sister Becky was sitting next to him, and she said, hey, I'd like some of that too. And Gordon turned to her with either a New England humor, you can't always tell, or dead serious, and said, okay, how much would you like? At which point she said, no, no, I I was just kidding. And he said, no, if you want money, it's fine. Uh, Take what you want. What would you like? My sister began backing off, looking shocked. (laughs) I remember this moment vividly all these years later for several reasons. First, This was my older sister. She was a senior. I was a freshman in high school. She wrote the book on cool. 
And here was this old guy completely undoing her. <laughs> Confusion and astonishment were written across her face, and all of us quit doing what we'd been doing and paid attention because suddenly the storyline had changed. You know that storyline you saw in every TV show where all kids wanted from parents was money and badgered them for it, and adults reluctantly shook their heads and handed it out, maybe with a sigh. Suddenly, we weren't watching that show anymore. Suddenly, before our eyes, someone was saying, what you want is so much more important than money. Take the money. That's not the main thing. It's you. You're the center. Transformational leaders set the dominant script on its head, tell a new story. Transformational leaders offer a new story where the heart's longing matters most. What we all saw clearly in that moment was that the story we saw and heard and told each other over and over was not the whole story. That in fact there was a much more strange and interesting story, it turned out, that what we actually wanted from each other was to see and be seen, to know and be known, to listen and be heard. Transformational leaders tell a new story. Interestingly, Kelly shared with me that a note came from Gordon McKeeman to her. He's now retired in Rochester, Minnesota, and he wrote her this after receiving the invitation to this installation ordination. We've received the handsome invitation to attend your ordination into Unitarian Universalist ministry. I like the sound and I hope the intent of that sentence. It sounds as though you're being ordained into a ministry that will last a lifetime, that while you're being ordained by the First Universalist Church of Minneapolis and may even serve that church, your ordination is to something far larger in importance, the ministry of the whole. Essentially, you become a representative of the whole UUA ministering to it. Your responsibilities are greater than that. You've earned that right and knowingly accept the duties it entails. It's a proud position, and you are rightly proud of what you do say and are. He continues, regretfully, we've grown old and given up driving and have given away our car and travel almost none at all, but we're proud when others take up the calling and begin your careers as Unitarian Universalist ministers. Your achievements make you worthy to serve. As you can tell, Gordon is still practicing transformational leadership. Age, illness, economic status cannot take away a transformational leader's power, just as no title or wealth can confer it. So now turn your mind to this question, when have you experienced leadership that created more love when a group was in conflict? I think of an experience I had in some of my earliest work for justice. The group Women Against Violence Against Women here in the Twin Cities was founded by the Quakers and is specifically an offshoot called Movement for a New Society. We had a great time being bold and having fun. We held successful Take Back the Night marches in 1979 and again in 1980, and in 1981, some of us who felt like we'd been there, done that, moved on and left, and the leadership all left, and the new leadership floundered. That year, there was fighting and accusations made back and forth between factions, throwing words around like racism and homophobia, and each side felt wronged and hurt, and thus made more accusations against the other. 
Eventually, it got so bad that the group announced it was going to cancel the 1981 march and shut down. Some of us old-timers came to an open meeting to talk about what might happen next. And so we walked into a meeting that felt so different from those we used to go to. It was full of finger-pointing and yelling and blame, and everyone was focused on where the little tiny bit of money the group had accumulated should go when the organization shut down. The factions might as well have been wearing swords and shields and armor. And into the middle came a woman named Sherry Menser, a Quaker woman who had put her life into beginning this organization and was its heart. She spoke in a clear, quiet, emotional voice. I've always wished I could see this moment on film because when she spoke, something happened. As near as I can remember, she said something like this. This organization was conceived in love and born in love, and it would break my heart if its life ended with bitterness and acrimony. I can see that those of us who left were not responsible leaders when we did that, and I am profoundly sorry. We didn't do what we should have done. I don't care where the money goes. I care about the spirit with which the money is passed on to whoever receives it, for that spirit is the legacy of this organization. Now, when I say that, it sounds kind of simple, almost obvious. It's impossible to tell you how much that simple statement changed the room. It felt like there had been cement walls in that room, and suddenly those words were the magic key that opened all the gates, and suddenly all the prisoners were released, and we were in an open field together. There were walls, and then there weren't. There had been sneering and eye-rolling and disdainful interruption, and suddenly people had tears rolling down our faces. We each became centered in our own heart's longing, in our own regret about where we hadn't been responsible leaders. The entire group was radically transformed. In that moment, it became a new group. Transformational leaders named the deepest troop truth with compassion and clarity and dare to state what matters most, not winning, but the spirit, not aligning with a side, but speaking from the center, claiming responsibility for mistakes and offering to help move forward. I don't know why in that moment the whole group transformed. Maybe the moon was in the seventh house. Maybe the wind was blowing just right. All I know is in that moment, the entire group became new. All I know is that I saw walls and then there were none. This experience makes me wonder what would happen if we quit worrying about winning and losing and went and spoke to our neighbors in this country now about the bitter divides that we're all building. I want to share just one more story tonight. As you see, if you're in your own mind, there are so many of them that start to come up. But when did you experience leadership that created more courage for you, that gave you strength to do what you didn't think you could? I think of John Cummins, who was the senior minister here when I came in 1985 to be on staff. I was very young. I think I was 12. <laughs> I was the DRE. John asked me to preach, and I agreed. But as the time came near for me to give that first sermon, I entered into such terror and dread that I thought I might literally stand in the pulpit and throw up. 
I went to John's office and said, John, there's been a terrible mistake. I just can't do it. He said to me in a very kind voice, well, you're really scared, aren't you? And I said, yes, feeling this relief of taking off the burden. And he said, well, we're going to have to get you in the pulpit a lot until it's not so scary for you. I backed out of his office. No, no, once is fine, once is enough. <laughs> but here's the thing. If John had believed my story, which I certainly believed, heart and soul, that I couldn't do it, I would certainly not have preached then, and I might not have preached ever. It's fair to say, in fact, that had John not looked at me and seen something there that I couldn't see, had John accepted the story I was telling, had he not been compelled to turn that story on its head and tell a new story, had John understood leadership to be something he had a lot of because he was an old guy and I was a young girl, had John done that, he could have seemed to be a gentleman as he took the burden from me and sheltered me from my own fear. And had John done that, very likely I would not be an ordained minister today. I would not be standing here today. I would not be passing on the gifts that have been given to me. I would not be reminding Kelly and all of us how precious the gifts are that we receive. You see how fragile the whole system is. You see how much each of our parts matters, whether we're in a wheelchair in Rochester, Minnesota, we're in the middle of a group in struggle, we're in front of a classroom. Every tiny part matters tremendously. We need each other if our leadership is to flower. John knew that transformational leaders do not try to carry other people's burdens for them, for this is impossible. He did not try to take my fear from me and take care of it for me. He simply watched me with compassion and let me hold it myself. Transformational leaders stay centered in their own boundaries, carry their own burdens and brokenness with as much grace as they can muster, but don't pick up the bits that other people try to hand off to them. Transformational leadership is not about saving other people. Salvation is an inside job. Transformational leaders know that first and foremost, their duty is to save their own soul and in so doing to touch and heal others in ways they might not even imagine. Those of us who are Unitarian Universalists do not believe in vicarious atonement. That is to say, we don't believe that our salvation comes from a great life lived by someone else, be that Jesus or Moses or Martin Luther King Jr. We are each left with our own soul salvation as our life's work. And of course, none are saved until all are saved. Transformational leaders know that only in waking up our own consciousness, saving our own soul, taking the steps we must take, can we hope to save anything at all. As people responsible for our own salvation, we are, by definition, a community of leaders. Every single person in this room and outside these doors has the potential to transform this planet if we claim our place and make our mark in history. There we are, 
at that small desk in room three at Overbrook School, writing on a piece of paper. There we are, interacting with our families and people in our workplaces. There we are, alone in prayer. There are so many moments, so many gifts we've all been given, so many transmissions of love and wisdom that we've received that allow us to be here together tonight, to be transformed, to receive these transmissions fully, we must allow the gifts to live within us until we rise to their level and pass them along, claiming power to do so in a way that is ours. May we do so with joy and with humility and with never-ending gratitude for all we have been given. Let us sing together now of what we could do if we dared to claim all that has been given to us. <laughs> 